This podcast may include adult content. Bound Off is an independent, nonprofit audio magazine committed to paying authors for their work. To join us in our mission of broadcasting great stories to a worldwide audience, please consider dropping us a dollar or two at boundoff.com donate. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have three stories. Dirt in the Face by Merle Drown. Theodore Roosevelt would have liked to be rescued by Colin Blair Graberic. And Exposure by Eric McKinley. Dirt in the Face. Written by Merle Drown. Read by Pat Drown. Listening time, 4 minutes, 15 seconds. Dirt in the Face by Merle Drown. Some days I had to wait on Ted's brothers and their wives, his sisters and their husbands. They'd come over in dresses and hats and carrying their little dogs to see their daddy. Daddy, my Ted's father, took over the upstairs of our house after wifey too threw him out and Ted was still paying off the place we bought from daddy. You brothers and sisters got their own places, daddy told Ted, like the depression was Ted's fault. Okay, so it wasn't the depression. I was pregnant, and Daddy wanted to ship Ted to his brother in Canada and marry him off up there. The one time Ted stood up to Daddy. Your daughter Betty's living in a trailer, I said. But she owns it. Ted just owns his underwear if he keeps them on. (laughs) Daddy laughed like he was eating your liver, and he laughed at Ted all the time. So they sat in my living room, all dolled up. Daddy in the white shirt I boiled for him, his hat off for once, and drank my coffee and ate my cookies. Dog's better carpet sweeper than you, Daddy told me when one of the yappers jumped down for cookie crumbs off my rug. (laughs) I scrubbed all day because he was always telling me he couldn't stand no dirt. Dirt floor in Europe growing up, he tells me, same as for animals. Every Sunday, his gang, Candy, talked how good Daddy looked, how clean, how neat. They never asked how many pails of water I heated for his bath, his laundry. I didn't tell how he started the day with an egg from under the hen's ass cracked into a glass of beer. I was pregnant with our third and could barely keep down a glass of water. They didn't see him chew the fish head from the soup pot, spit the eyeballs on the table, then flick them into my kids' laps. <laughs> They didn't watch him bounce between the tracks coming home from the tavern, wolf howling, or hear me praying for a train. When Ted got more overtime and paid off the house, I told them Daddy's dirt. Right away, Brother Wayne and his wife took Daddy in, only he didn't stay upstairs in their house, and he didn't stay long. They make me live basemento, Daddy said. I want to live in hole in ground I could stay in Europe. Oh, said Betty. Oh, Daddy, you come live with me. That lasted about six months because, like Daddy said, Betty owned the trailer. He called me dirty, him with mill stink always on him. I told him find his own goddamn trailer to live in, raw eggs and fish heads. By then, Sister Eileen had moved to the east and Brother Bill to Arizona. I won't say it was to duck taking Daddy in, but I got my thoughts. Ted said we should take Daddy in, but I asked Daddy, why don't you rent somewhere? He said he's saving to go back to Europe, take his money, take his social security, and go live there. I think that's good. 
So back he came with me, but I told him, I hold your savings or you stay in the basement. We got a bank account in both our names. He never told his children till the end. Oh, Mother Mary, how his kids did howl. They said I was robbing him, but they meant I was robbing them. Daddy told them in Europe he could live in a nice house with people waiting on him and no dirt. He'd even picked out a mausoleum for himself over there. When I got old, Ted dead, his brothers dead, just Betty left, she came by one day. The two of us shuffled our walkers to the living room like hens scratching in the yard. No dogs, no hats, but I still put out the coffee and the cookies. After a while, Betty said, I never could understand why Daddy wanted to be buried in Europe. He could pay for that above-ground grave, I said. He told me he couldn't stand no one throwing dirt in his face. I told him right back I felt the same. That's how we came eye to eye in the end. Merle Drown is the author of two novels, Plowing Up a Snake and The Suburbs of Heaven. He has received fellowships from the NEA and the New Hampshire Arts Council and teaches in Southern New Hampshire University's MFA program. Theodore Roosevelt Would Have Liked to Be Rescued, written and read by Colin Blair Graberic. Listening time, 6 minutes, 27 seconds. Theodore Roosevelt Would Have Liked to Be Rescued by Colin Blair Graberic. Theodore Roosevelt left his fellows at the Amazon River's edge and trekked alone into the jungle where he happened upon a curious flower. It drooped from a patch of moss that coated a massive dead tree trunk, its stem deep green and its slick black petals folded up and in to form a sort of dome. The dome rustled. Theodore crouched, removed his steamed-over glasses, and squinted. The air smelled faintly scorched. "'Here's a discovery,' Theodore said." He took one of the rubbery petals between his index and middle fingers. When he peeled back the petal, a tiny purple snake slithered from within the flower and down Theodore's hand. Pin fangs sunk into his wrist, and the snake's body burst into a thousand pieces. Its scales twirled to earth. Theodore recoiled and cradled his wounded arm, which stung only a little. From the puncture wounds, two thin red lines crept heartward. He whipped the bandana from around his neck and began to tie a tourniquet above his elbow. As he did, a memory from his presidency pounded in his mind. His son, Quentin, a young boy then, cracking bat against ball on the diamond he had carved into the White House lawn, then rounding the bases, a triple. Hurried and shaking, Theodore wrenched at the tourniquet. The strength of his pulse quivered his vision. But before he could tighten the knot, the red line stopped. Halt, Theodore thought. The insects of the jungle tittered. As Theodore headed back to rejoin the expedition, he examined his wound. The lines were less than two inches long and so narrow they could hardly be seen, unimpressive in every respect. Yet a quiet dread possessed Theodore, for the poison might reawaken Ford March. It was harsh poison, no doubt. No tourniquet would stop it. How easily the snake had tossed him into fate's hands, the man who had stormed San Juan Hill as the bullets flew close enough to trim his mustache and wring his teeth. The man who had soldiered through a campaign speech with a would-be assassin's bullet fresh in his chest. Now a sturdy sort of terror came over him, for the snake said, Go on and take the hill. Finish your speech. Pay your bills and kiss your wife and children every day. I am here, but I am not ready for you yet. 
Days later, on that same Amazonian expedition in the early months of 1914, Theodore contracted a hideous strain of malaria that dragged him to the brink of death. In a feverish moment just before the illness broke, he could have sworn the sweat draining from his skin was as purple as the snake. The sweat beads were tiny purple scales. And when the illness passed, Theodore wondered if the ferocity of the malaria had been compounded somewhat by the snake bite, if not spawned by it altogether. In the years that followed, Theodore paid his bills and kissed his wife and children and more. At his home in Oyster Bay, he pitched countless lazy baseballs to Quentin. Put a little on this next one, Dad, a grinning Quentin would say. I'm throwing my best stuff, a beaming Theodore would lie. He secretly hoped to never pitch a ball or strike, for he loved the pot Quentin managed when his bat struck the ball. He loved the way his son's torso twisted with such force, how Quentin committed to his swing. But not for a single day during all of those years did the snake's warning stray from Theodore's mind. The lines on his wrist never faded, and whenever a headache settled upon him or his back grew stiff or he felt that one of his shoulders sagged lower than the other, his bones out of place, he studied the lines to see if they might have traveled farther up his arm. One such day occurred in 1917 when Quentin set off for Europe to fight the Kaiser from an airplane. The army had refused to take Theodore, though he had begged with them. He wanted more than anything to charge across the mucky fields of France amidst the chatter of machine guns and the roar of shells. He wanted to storm the enemy's trench in the shadow of Quentin's airplane high above. Yet the army had declared him old, frail, and unfit for combat. So Theodore did the only thing an old, frail, and unfit man could do. He examined the lines on his wrist with a singular fervor. In the past, the line's dormancy had dulled Theodore's fears for a while, but now he worried that the poison was wilier than he had once suspected. Perhaps the dormant lines were mere decoys for poison wreaking havoc beneath his skin. For weeks he consulted texts on every known snake and snake venom, and while he found nothing to support his theory, he held it all the same. And when Quentin caught enemy fire and crashed to his death in some unimaginable place in France, a tremendous grief coiled around Theodore and squeezed just enough to kill him slowly. He would outlive Quentin by only six months, and throughout those months he carried with him the secret knowledge that the snake had taken his son from him. How? It didn't matter how. It simply was. Who could say how a type of poison might work, given time? On a December night in 1918, a weak rain fell upon Theodore's home at Oyster Bay and pip-pipped on the glass of his bedroom window. He could not sleep through the noise, through those snake scales making such a racket as they fell. Though he was laid low with the bout of rheumatism from which he would never recover, Theodore hobbled from his bed and down the stairs, threw open the door and stepped into the rain. His nightgown grew chill and damp, smelled of wet hair. Theodore raised his fists and shook them at the sky, and then at the ground, and then all around, because who knew where the ghost of that snake might be? His afflicted joints flamed. He shouted, "'Enough already! You've landed your punch! It's settled, you see! Be a sport now and stop!' He pleaded, "'Be a sport now and stop! Be a sport!' The rain fell too lightly to soak Theodore, yet he felt soaked. He shivered against the cold. His toes hummed, caked in frigid mud. He shouted louder and louder. He stepped closer to the house. He hoped his family might wake at his shouts and rescue him from the cold and the snake. For the first time in his life, he would have very much liked to be rescued. But no one rescued him. When morning came, they even failed to rescue his nightgown from the mudstains it had won in the night. So they threw it out.
The end. Colin Blair Graberic writes in Virginia. He received his MFA from George Mason University, where he was the fiction editor of Phoebe, a journal of literature and art. Exposure. Written and read by Eric McKinley. Listening time, nine minutes. Exposure by Eric McKinley. Murray Levine hustled. This was hard for him because he was not fit. But he ran for the train out of love. He ambled, huffed, and snagged the last two seats in the quiet car. Murray had a perpetual dislike for conversation. It hadn't always been this way, he recalled, but it developed as years passed by. Murray lived for the quiet car. He sat by the window, placed his leather briefcase on the aisle seat, blocking it. Murray leaned back, almost prepared for the four-hour ride from Boston to NYC. His tie was tight. His combed-over hair was not. He had forgotten to take off his undersized suit jacket. It was Monday, 6 a.m. The train rolled out. Intermittent quick bands of light flashed onto Murray's face from outside. He unfolded the Wall Street Journal, with his eyes falling on a piece proclaiming that the middle class now spent less and less. Had he not been so reverent of the quiet car, Murray would have scoffed out loud. He was middle class, maybe upper middle class, and his spending endlessly rose. His wife, Jennifer, spent to the limit of what they had. She also shopped too much. His kids, 12 and 14, tapped him like an ATM in a strip club. And because revenue was low with exposure high, Murray had sworn off massage parlors. The quiet car was almost all he had left. It was not as if Murray's life was noisy. He lived in a state house with a manicured lawn. Autumn leaves gathered in his yard. He had two slow, sensible family sedans, one in the garage, the other in the driveway. Murray had a porch swing that no one ever used anymore. And things had been floating along in a particularly chill silence since that night over wheat pasta and meatless sauce. The kids were out somewhere. Jennifer reached in her purse. She pulled out a business card and slid it to him by fingertip across their dinner table. We should start this conversation, Jennifer said. Murray chewed penne that tasted like construction paper. He had not touched his unbuttered, organic Brussels sprouts. He'd had his head down in a two-day-old Boston Globe. Murray glanced at the card, looked up at her, and, fork in hand, asked, You mean the one about us eating normal food? The card was from a divorce lawyer. Jennifer did not answer. She lifted her hand off the card and got up to clear the table. That was two months ago. Today, Murray had a chocolate chip muffin in his briefcase. In his rush, he'd forgotten to get coffee. He needed coffee and wouldn't touch the muffin without a few sips to get himself right. No matter how much the cake in its greasy paper bag called out to him, Murray would wait until the cafe car opened. He would finish the spending story and listen for the conductor's announcement. The first stop was Back Bay. People got on. Murray did that thing where he leaned over, futzed around inside his briefcase, thumbing through paper, digging his hand to the bottom for a pen he did not need. He pretended to be determined. Murray wanted to sit alone that bad. 
He knew he'd have to share at some point, but he wanted to make it through breakfast to Providence at least. So Murray burrowed like a gopher. Head down, he saw a pair of black high-top Chuck Taylors looking back up at him. They were about a size 10. They also had to be brand new. The white toes were spotless. The right toe tapped the floor. Murray would not make it to Providence. Excuse me, sir, is anyone sitting here? The kid's voice was raised, giving the earphones in his ears. Murray pretended not to hear. Sir? Murray's briefcase was not that deep. He huffed. He had to give it up. Murray nodded and gave the kid a disingenuous smile. He moved his bag aside. The kid nodded back. He wore a fitted Yankee cap, tilted, slanted high on his dome. Murray thought the cap was going to fall off at any second, but it didn't move. The kid's hairline was razor sharp. It was faultlessly even. Murray had always wondered how they did that. He whispered to the kid, You know, this is the quiet car. What? The kid whispered back, even raspier, mocking. Murray didn't flinch. He repeated, This is the quiet car. The kid, who had already turned down his music, pointed to the sign over their heads. Please refrain from loud talking or using cell phones in this car. In his normal tone, the kid said, I can read, yo, but thanks for the update. Then the kid grinned, happy to break Murray's balls. Seated, he reached into his backpack. Murray straightened up and reopened the paper. He read about swine flu. The kid pulled out a black and white marble composition book, a pen. He pulled out a paperback, like the singing coming off the drums by Sonia Sanchez. Murray knew nothing of this. He snuck glances at the kid who left the paperback closed while opening the notebook. The kid pushed up the sleeves on his black hoodie. He turned down the seat back tray table. And then the kid took up his pen and thrashed. Murray still wanted his unhealthy breakfast. He still wanted both seats. Still wanted absolute silence. But he said nothing as the kid moved. As he wrote, performed in such a way, offered grace quick in time and distracted. The kid leaned into the tray table, let out deep breaths, bopped his head to the beat in his ears, twitched muscles in his toned brown forearms. The kid's pen raced obscurity across the page. Murray looked at his newspaper, then down at the floor. One white-toed sneaker tapped again. The train stopped. With the bounce back from breaking, the kid snapped two from reverie. He set down the pen and thumbed through the paperback. The conductor announced that they would be moving again momentarily and that the cafe car was now open. The kid sat up straight. He looked blankly into distance as, as if contemplating what was next. He turned to Murray and whispered, I'm going to get tea. You want something? Murray sat back now, startled. He had been stuck watching the kid work and he wasn't used to being consulted on what he wanted. Coffee, Murray said, now not so sure. Cool, be right back. The kid stood. He flipped up his hood. He strolled down the aisle. The Yankee cap still hadn't moved. In 20 minutes, Murray bore witness to so much. He noticed the kid's literature again, the kid's black pen. Confounded, Murray picked it up, expecting it to burn his hand. He would not have been surprised if the ballpoint was on fire.
10 minutes. Was there a long line at the cafe car? Had the kid, had the kid got to talking to other passengers? Were they talking about him, about his paunch, about his choking tie, about his punkish quiet car love? Murray was so curious. It was a feeling with which he was long unfamiliar. The composition book sat on the kid's seat. It beckoned. It damn near glowed. Twelve minutes. Into what fountain had the kid tapped? What spirit? Murray didn't believe in much and didn't subscribe to any faith. But he did know a little something about following. It was what he did. It was how he ended up taking business trips in two small suits and eating Brussels sprouts. Murray hoped the cafe car line was long, that the kid was making friends, charming them with his sarcasm. Murray sought to learn, perhaps find some words to begin Jennifer's conversation, or maybe find the right words to avoid it. Either way, he had a long ride ahead. Fifteen minutes. Murray was nervous. He held the pen. He picked up the composition book. Murray fingered the pages, readied himself, inspired because the highlight of his day would have otherwise been a chocolate chip muffin. Eric McKinley is a Philadelphian. He has an MFA in creative writing from Rosemont College. He specializes in hip-hop literary fiction. Samplings of his work can be found at ericmckinleyfiction.wordpress.com. Listener-supported Bound Off is made possible by grants from the Current Family Endowed Fund and the President's Fund of the Greater Cedar Rapids Community Foundation. Further support comes from the Google Grants Program. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.